you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. The chronology of 14 events includes any number of people whose death, for one reason or another, is inexplicable. This may include the phenomena of spontaneous human combustion, bizarre accidents, murders simply not recognized as such, as well as other inexplicable deaths. Several of these are described here. A quartet of cases described by Charles Fort, those of Captain George M. Calvacaresses, the English case of Lavinia Farrar, Lillian Green and her death at the Lake Denmark Hotel in New Jersey, and the locked door death of New York launderer Isidore Fink, and then three more cases with theoretical solutions next episode. This is episode 92, Death Most Mysterious, part 1. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. New York Times, July 1st, 1872. There is a terrible fascination to many besides professional detectives in the attempt to discover the identity of an assassin by putting together the broken threads of circumstantial evidence generally found in profusion about every mysterious murder. The less readily those threads knit together and the more incongruous they are when joined, the more intense is the interest in the work of attempting to weave from them a rope with which to hang the murderer. But if, after weeks of patient investigation, doubts should begin to arise whether any crime but that of self-murder has been committed, the case forces itself upon public attention as one of very rare occurrence. Hence, the tragedy at Bridgeport, Connecticut, of which Captain George M. Calvacaresses was the victim, promises, from late developments, to absorb more of the public interest than it has yet received. At first, there was no question but that this was a deliberate, carefully concocted murder for the sake of gain, which had been carried into execution with extraordinary nerve. Committed early in the evening, in a street of a large city, usually much frequented at that hour, the murder seemed to have been done by one who had patiently followed his victim, and finding darkness and solitude where neither could have been expected, seized the opportunity thus suddenly presented. There was nothing improbable thus far in the theory of murder, and it was greatly strengthened by the discovery of memoranda which seemed to show that Captain Calvacaresses had been robbed of a large amount in securities. Here was a motive for the crime, and the officers appear to have worked as honestly and patiently as they have fruitlessly upon this basis. They seem to have been troubled from the beginning by a circumstance never before encountered in murder. Though the dead man had been shot through the heart, His coat and vest had not been perforated, and his shirt had been burned. 
thus showing conclusively that the muzzle of the pistol had been placed within the two outer garments before the shot was fired. It was exceedingly difficult to imagine what sort of an assassin he must have been, who would have taken the chance of defeating his purpose by his shot going astray, as there was great danger it would from being hurriedly fired from the side, so it must have been. Failing to find the slightest clue to the murderer, the detectives went back to the dead body and have commenced a critical examination of the pistol and satchel found beside it, which it is singular was not made before. It is found that there are indentations in the latter in which the muzzle and hammer of the weapon exactly fit, thus raising the inference that the pistol was the property of the deceased and consequently that he died by his own hand. As a fact leading to the same conclusion, it is announced that a few months before his death, Captain Calva Caresses insured his life for the unusually large amount of $193,000. And being 65 years of age, he was paying $20,000 per annum in premiums, although now supposed to have been a comparatively poor man. Doubts have arisen whether he ever possessed the securities mentioned within his memoranda, and these are taken as additional evidence that the tragedy was nothing more than a suicide. But it is urged against this theory that no man ever deliberately took his own life in the cause of philanthropy, and that the will of Captain Calva Caresses, executed March 9, 1872, containing charitable bequests to the amount of a few thousand dollars, shows that it is impossible that his death could have been the consummation of a shrewdly concocted plan to defraud the insurance companies. However little weight there might be in this suggestion, considering the comparatively small amount of these bequests, it must be admitted that there is a great deal in the fact that Captain Culver Caresses was a man of high character and stainless life, whom it is difficult to believe could have been guilty of a crime so entirely desperate and unparalleled as this would be if the theory of suicide should be established. Men have often been guilty, at the close of long and honorable lives, of acts of which they were supposed incapable, but no man ever displayed the nerve and cunning and depravity which Captain Culver Caresses must have, if he died by his own hand. It can be readily seen that there are enigmas in this Bridgeport tragedy which will probably never be solved. Many absurd stories connected with it, like that of a belt belonging to a female dress, which it has proved a child had dropped when tired of playing with a kitten, have been exploded. But the undeniable facts surrounding this affair are sufficiently perplexing. Charity for the dead and knowledge of what adroit ruffians this world of ours contains demand that the theory of suicide shall be accepted only upon the most irrefutable and convincing proof. It will not do for the officers of the law to assume that the case is one of self-murder and now desist from all further effort. A most atrocious assassination may have been committed and is an incumbent upon them to use every endeavor to bring the murderer, if there be one, to justice. The death of Captain Calva Caresses is a well-documented one. I might go more into the case at a later date, but to summarize a few other details not mentioned in this article, the death occurred on Clinton Street, a short thoroughfare that no longer exists, being now buried underneath a highway on-ramp. A bag that had contained the money stolen from Calva Caresses was found several blocks away a few days later. As stated here, Arguments raged over whether the captain was murdered or had killed himself. Clearly, the New York Times came down on the side of homicide. A Hartford, a Hartford Courant article from a few days later equally queer, clearly on that of suicide. 
The latter article contains quotes from several witnesses who live nearby. The captain's cane had been snapped in half. One of the witnesses believed she may have heard the cane break, which was, she claimed, almost 15 minutes before the gunshot. The detail of no bullet hole in the clothing seems to be in dispute. While most sources support this, at least the Hartford article says there was one. Several years later, a Danish sailor who had died at sea confessed that he had murdered Captain Kovacaresses in a robbery gone wrong. In the struggle, his cane was broken. So this poses a problem. If the cane was broken in the struggle with a robber, why, according to the witness, was it 15 minutes until the captain was shot? The Times, March 16, 1901. An inquest was held at Manchester yesterday into the death of Lavinia Farrar, a blind lady of independent means, 72 years of age, who for the last three weeks had lived alone. Mr. W.S. Jones, whose wife was a relative of, of Lavinia Farrar, said the lady seldom kept servants in her employment owing to her queer temper, and probably she had been unable to replace her last attendant. The witness called on her the previous day, and, failing to obtain any response to his knocking, summoned Dr. Yates and forcibly entered the house. The old lady was discovered lying dead on the kitchen floor. Near her feet was an open knife. There was no appearance of a struggle and nothing to point to foul play. The witness knew of no one who could have entertained a grudge against the woman, or of any motive that could have induced anyone to injure her. Dr. Yates said that, though at first no injury was found to account for death, closer investigation resulted in the discovery of a wound near the heart. She had probably been dead since the previous day. Dr. Heslop, divisional police surgeon, who made a post-mortem examination, said that the wound referred to by Dr. Yates was the one which had caused death. It had penetrated to the heart. The knife corresponded to the wound exactly. From the way the woman was dressed, however, it seemed impossible that it could have been self-inflicted. The blood from the wound had only smeared on one of her inner garments, and he could not find where eight drops of blood which were found on the door could have come from. Mrs. Sprickley, a neighbor, who had examined the old lady's clothing and had seen how it was fixed on the body, declared that the clothes were so stitched up that it seemed impossible for the woman to have got the knife to where the wound was. The jury returned an open verdict. This one was somewhat similar to the death of Captain Calva Caresses. I'm a bit uncertain how you can unequivocally say someone killed themselves, but then also go on to say you can't explain the circumstances of said death. If you can't accurately say how the thing was done, then what exactly is it that implies the thing even was done? Next up is the death of Lillian Green near Dover, New Jersey just before Christmas 1916. It is frequently referred to as a case of spontaneous human combustion, or SHC, for example by Charles Fort in Wild Talents. English-born Thomas W. Morphy was a bar owner from Patterson, New Jersey, and was, apparently, a champion bird shooter. Around 1901, he and his wife moved from Patterson to Dover, around 20 miles away in rural Morris County. Here they operated a small hotel on the shores of Lake Denmark. When his wife died three years later, 
Morphy was left needing a housekeeper for the hotel, and he hired a woman named Lillian Green, with whom he had been acquainted for several years. At about 6 p.m. on the evening of December 23, 1916, Morphy locked up the bar and told Lillian Green that he was going to turn in early, as he wasn't feeling well. Green replied that she was going to finish writing some correspondence and read a bit before she, too, turned in. Morphy judged that he had just gotten into bed when he heard the front door open and shut as if Green had just gone out. Then, he said, he fell asleep and it was early on the morning of the 24th that he was again awoken by the sound of the door opening and shutting again and of something falling heavily. Later findings would seem to dispute the timeline of events as Morphy remembered them. It seems rather more likely that he had already been asleep for quite some time when he heard Green leave the first time, and that the time that elapsed between hearing the door the first time and the object falling was probably a shorter one than he judged, but more on the outer timeline later. Morphy came out of his room and down the stairs to find the body of Lillian Green lying on the floor. She was still alive, though she was extremely badly burnt. As described in the Patterson Morning Call of December 27, 1916, she was badly burned about the body and was almost nude. The little clothing she wore, however, had not even been scorched. She was minus shoes and stockings, and still her legs and feet had not been seared. Lillian asked Morphy for some water, and apparently drank six glasses. She maintained she wasn't burnt too badly. After finding Lillian, Morphy picked her up and laid her on a bed before calling Dr. W.S. Costello. Short of discovering that her burns had likely occurred about six hours before, however, Dr. Costello didn't learn much of anything. Lillian Green died at Dover Hospital. As soon as, as, soon as the death of Lillian Green became known, rumors began flying as to what happened. Some were convinced that Thomas Morphy had killed her, while others pointed to the remarkable coincidence that on the same night, the Hotel Erskine, some seven miles away at Lake Hopatcong, was destroyed by fire. These people claimed Lillian had been there, though if someone was burned as badly as she was, traveling seven miles back to Lake Denmark to die there is, well, just plain unrealistic. An investigation of the circumstances was launched by Morris County Prosecutor Charles Reed and County Detective Edward Brennan. An examination of the premises revealed that whatever had occurred, it had likely taken place in a second-floor hallway. The walls of the hallway were scorched by fire, the paint was blistered, and fragments of charred clothing were discovered. Detective Brennan collected clothing fragments from not just there, but in adjoining hallways and the bathroom as well. Lillian's clothes were all found in a room, and so it was theorized that she had been dressed in her nightclothes when death occurred. While the case doesn't seem to be spontaneous combustion as usually presented, the exact cause of Lillian's injuries was never clearly determined. It was theorized that she somehow set her nightclothes ablaze, possibly with a candle, had run to the bathroom to extinguish the flames, accounting for the burnt fragments there, and then failing that, had run outside to attempt to use the snow to put out the fire. This is supported by Morphe's having noticed that although severely burnt, Lillian's body was also extremely cold. If this is, indeed, what occurred, it's likely that the timeline initially given by Thomas Morphy was incorrect. 
This doesn't necessarily seem suspicious to me, though, as we're dealing with someone who is half asleep, and as we all know, accurately determining exactly how much time has passed when only half conscious is difficult, to say the least. Then you do have Dr. Costello's mentioning that the actual burns had taken place six hours before, though how long Lillian lay in the hotel before he arrived, I don't know. How exactly Lillian Green died will probably never be, be really determined. She is buried in Ridley Park, Pennsylvania, in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Arizona Republic, March 12, 1929. New York, March 11th. The plot for a perfect detective story was found by patrolman Cattenbane of a Harlem station when he boosted a small boy through a transom to gain ingress to a neighborhood hand laundry early the day. A woman, breathless from running two blocks, had told the policeman she heard a scuffle in the shop. Admitted by the boy, patrolman Cattenbane found the warm body of Isidore Fink, 30, bleeding from three bullet holes. His gas iron was still lighted on an ironing board and had not had time to scorch the cloth. All doors and windows were bolted and locked. The gun was missing, and there was money both in Fink's pockets and in the cash drawer. Customers of Fink's laundry said they had been inconvenienced for the past year because he had insisted on keeping his front door locked and admitting only those whom he recognized. Brooklyn Times Union, March 11, 1929 A murderer who apparently escaped from a locked room in a tenement at 4 East 132nd Street, Manhattan, was being sought today by police for the killing of Isidore Fink, laundryman, who lived at 52 East 133rd Street, Manhattan. A rumor in the tenement called police Saturday midnight when she heard screams and the sounds of a struggle in Fink's laundry. When police arrived, the laundry door was tightly locked. All the doors were locked. Police lifted a boy through the transom, too small for a man to pass through, and he unlocked the door. Fink was dead, shot twice through the chest, and once through the left wrist. The most likely explanation for Fink's death, barring anything more inexplicable, seems to be that he was answering a knock at the door, and whoever it was shot the launderer when he answered it, or perhaps he had been shot in the hallway. Either way, he makes it inside, locks the door so that the assassin can't get to him, and then expires in the apartment. This would seem plausible. Certainly, I'm sure there's any number of homicides with similar explanations. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram, at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to the e- to our email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. And so... Until next time, this is Andrew, signing off.
This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.